You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. Werner Vinge is a mathematician, computer scientist, and science fiction writer. His groundbreaking paper, The Coming Technological Singularity, first presented in 1993 to the Vision 21 Symposium sponsored by NASA, introduced the concept of the technological singularity to both scientists and science fiction writers. His new novel is Rainbow's End. Welcome to the program, Werner. Hi, Rick. Werner, let's get right to it. Tell me, what is the technological singularity? Well, what I mean by the term is the notion that in the near historical future, that we will very likely be able to, through technology, create beings that are intellectually surpass uh, humans in every way that we think of when we think of human creativity and intelligence and insight. As a technological event, if such occurs, it is a fundamentally different sort of technological progress than futurists have worked with in the past. And the analogy that I like to use is that if you had some magical way of bringing Mark Twain into our era, in an afternoon you could explain to him what's going on. And I think he would understand it and very quickly be up to speed. I think he would love it, being sort of a a geeky fellow himself. But if you tried to do the same experiment with a goldfish, your effort would be doomed. And that's the difference between thinking about technological futures as we've thought about them in the past and thinking about technological futures in this fairly near future era. And so I think it's quite appropriate to call such a transition a singularity. For one thing, it's a dramatic change in the rules. And for another, by analogy with singularities in relativity theory, black holes and things like that, there is an essential lack of information that we can imagine about what it would be like beyond the point where we are no longer intellectually at center stage. You've said there are four potential ways this could happen. Could you talk to us about each of those four ways? And when you wrote the paper, that was 1993, do you think things have changed since then? Ah, the four, thinking back to the 93 paper, I had several paths to the singularity. I, I think they may get mixed together, but they were As talking points, it's nice to look at them separately. One is the classic artificial intelligence, the computer, that you just make a very, very powerful computer and you figure out how to hook it up internally and it wakes up. So that's one one possibility. Another possibility was that just bioscience succeeds in making us or beings that are smarter than human. And a third way is that we develop what might be called augmented intelligence or amplified intelligence, intelligence amplification, IA, instead of artificial intelligence, AI. For many people, this is the most attractive because that means that people, as they exist now, could themselves be the participants in this new era. And then the fourth path that I think I had in the essay was that the ensemble of man and his networked computers could actually itself become something that was greater than a human, sort of a a worldwide meta-intelligence. And as far as the years having passed and the changes, I'm actually still very pleased with the essay. I think as we go forward in time, we're now entering an era where 
one of the fundamental requirements is beginning to be satisfied. That is just a simple raw power reductionist argument that we're beginning to get power in our computers that is beginning to be barely comparable with the hardware power that exists in our own mind, in our own brains, that as we enter this era, we may find that one or the other of these different four possibilities appears to become more plausible or less plausible. And in a way, that's one of the most intriguing and fun things of just being an observer of the passing scene in the early 21st century. You describe this as happening not before 2005 and not after the year 2030. Your new novel is set in 2025. Tell us a little bit about what you see happening between now and 2025. Where do you think the next step is? Ah, so in the essay, I said that I'd be surprised if the singularity were to happen before 2005. I stand by that. And I'd be surprised if it happened after 2030. It's something that may not happen at all, which is a very intriguing scenario by itself. But in the years that we're entering now, I think looking around at, at different trends is, is something that is worthwhile to do. And some of those trends are just the empowerment that the Internet is giving people. And in many cases, a power that, that actually raises personal organizations or the organizations of people up to a level that really couldn't have been sustained by governments or by companies or, or certainly by small numbers of individuals in the past. So that's one thing that's worth watching. Another is what happens when Moore's Law begins to give us really massive parallelism in a cheap enough form that it can be played with. One thing that was discovered in the mid-20th century was that the schemes that very creative and inventive people had come up with for imagining how computers could be used for solving differential equations problems in physics and weather prediction, it turned out that those methods were dramatically unworkable. The way people discovered this is when we finally got computers powerful enough to try out the schemes that had been imagined, we found that there were these problems. They don't show up when you only do one or two hundred hours of hand computation, but show up very quickly if you're doing it on a computer. In the same way, when we get cheap computers that may have thousands or tens of thousands of processors, and we have the ability to play with these, by we, I mean actually everybody with a technical inclination, and by play, I mean experiment in a sort of creative and general way, it's very possible that we may discover things that were just not, not visible about the process of hooking things up and making them work, and that things like software engineering and stuff like that may turn, or terminology like that, may turn out actually to have been an inappropriate metaphor for what it will mean to get results out of very, very large systems of machines. Let's talk a little bit about the history of this. Von Neumann was one of the first people to come up with this concept. Could you explain who he was and what his importance is in, with respect to this technological singularity? Uh, John von Neumann was a physicist and mathematician, really one of the most brilliant people in the 20th century. And unfortunately, he died at quite a young age in 1957. And through a circuitous route, I got a letter from a mathematician after I had been talking about the singularity. And he said, say, did you know that John von Neumann talked about the singularity? And in fact, in von Neumann's obituary, one of the people, I think probably the person who wrote the obituary, Stan Ulam, 
recounted a conversation that he had had with von Neumann. I think I'd quote the heart of this in the paper, in which von Neumann speculated that technology was going to take us into an essential singularity, which a term coming from von Neumann is especially interesting because essential singularity actually has a precise technical meaning in math, at which point progress would become unknowable. So apparently it's very frustrating that we're talking at second remove here about a hearsay conversation, but apparently the notion was not so much the um, existence or the creation of superhuman creatures, but just that progress would speed up and become so complex that people could not keep up with it. And that's an interesting concept by itself. I suspect that if we don't get something that has superhuman intelligence in some form, that the fact that progress is possible and could be faster and faster will not come to pass. In fact, that things would sort of level out, muddle out, and eventually things would stabilize in a way that would not be too much more advanced than what we have right now. When you came up with this concept of the technological singularity, you were writing as a mathematician and a computer scientist. Is that correct? The first time it came up, I was actually talking at an artificial intelligence conference in 1983 at Carnegie Mellon. And I had been invited to that conference really because I was a science fiction writer. However, I didn't let that stop me from blathering on about the term singularity. After that, one of the sponsors, which was Omni Magazine, asked me to do an op-ed piece, which I did, I think, in the January 83 issue of Omni. This general thing fits with what science fiction and techno geeks have often thought about the future, that technology would get to the point where it could do one essential thing, and that is boost humans or boost thought beyond where it, it was with present-day humans. But most of the time in the 20th century, the idea was that this would happen in the sweet by and by, maybe a million years from now, you know, when everybody's head was as big as a watermelon and the average IQ was 400. And in a way, if you think about it happening a million years from now, it's sort of a comforting thought. If you think about it happening in 50 years or 30 years or clearly within your own lifetime, then it actually is much more nervous-making. Throughout the 1980s, I concentrated more and more on that in my fiction. In Marooned in Real Time, it was really a, a central feature. I'd like to explore this idea of the juncture of science and science fiction. In the Singularity Symposium recently held at Stanford, there was an interesting divergence. When Ray Kurzweil got up and spoke, he spoke about the exponential effect and how this was all pretty much preordained if we looked at Moore's Law, and he spoke about it as science. Directly after him, Douglas Hofstadter got up and basically said, well, a lot of this is science fiction. So I'd like for you to tell me a little bit about where the science ends, where the science fiction starts, and how we're informed by the science fiction, how the science fiction informs and sometimes leads the science. Science fiction and its relationship to science and its relationship to the future is a very interesting thing. Well, it's especially interesting to me since I worked as a computer scientist and a mathematician and I write science fiction. Science fiction, the writers themselves, and I include myself, very rarely take themselves seriously in the sense of predicting things. In fact, the most spectacular predictions of science fiction, including some of places where I've been successful, 
have to be compared to all the times that science fiction in general and writers such as myself in particular have been completely wrong. So I don't think that science fiction is an extremely good tool for prediction. On the other hand, no one knows what the future is going to bring. So there is actually difficult to look for the sort of predictions about the most important things that may happen. Certain simple things like where is Jupiter going to be a year from now are relatively easy to predict. But some of the most important things about our lives are not. And this doesn't mean that thinking about the future is foolish or dead-ended. It just means that a person has to think more along the lines of scenarios, that is, things that could happen and what you might want to do to track whether they're going to happen or not and what you might want to do to make them happen or to avoid them. And I think a modest and yet somewhat arrogant view that science fiction might make for itself is that for the human race, science fiction has something like the same function that dreaming does for an individual human. You dream lots of things at night and when you're asleep, and many of them are nonsense. But oftentimes, they actually do give you feelings about things, and sometimes you wake up in the morning and you suddenly realize that what you dreamed about actually was a threat that you hadn't thought about before, something maybe you should worry about, or maybe something that actually was a very good idea that you hadn't thought about seriously enough, and the dream provided a sort of vivid scenario for looking at that situation and raising it up in your mind to a different priority. And in that regard, I think science fiction actually has done a very good job. When we look at, at history, we tend to see history as continuous. First, we have the, the phone and the video phone. Then we're going to have the 3D phone. But history is not really continuous. And there have been singularities in the past. And I'm wondering if you would care to discuss some of the singularities in the past. Ah, yes. And here, I think we get into a terminology for singularity that's different than the one I use. There have been very big changes in human history. I think that the Industrial Revolution could be characterized as a singularity. The invention of movable type. Certainly the invention of writing could be called a singularity. And the invention of agriculture. Certainly the invention of fire. All of those things are extraordinary changes in the human condition. They lack one thing about the upcoming event. And that is each of those things, with sufficient patience, could have been made understandable, not predictable maybe, but understandable to someone from an earlier time, if you magically could have talked to that someone from an earlier time. And the post-technological singularity era is one where that is not true. So if a person is searching for analogies, I think the analogy to the technological singularity lies not with any of the ones on my the list that I just went through, but instead the most recent good analogy would be the rise of humankind within the animal kingdom. One of the things that you suggest is that one of the reasons it's unavoidable is because of the nature of competition and capitalism in that any attempt to avoid it will immediately put those who try to avoid it at a competitive disadvantage. Could you comment on that? I have a slightly different twist on the setup of the question, and that is technological singularity may not happen. 
it may not happen for reasons that are obvious in retrospect, or it may not happen because of physical disasters, of which there are many possibilities, intervene. However, if it's the sort of thing that can happen, which I think it can, and a physical disaster does not intervene, then I segue into the setup for your question. Then there are so many different people who are working for this sort of thing who don't know that they are, and there is so much economic motive for it that it strikes me that in that constrained case, it has a certain inevitability about it. If you look at all the sorts of people who actually are involved with this, empowered by Moore's Law, by the improvement in network communications, improvement in computers and, and in computer storage, we have obviously economic, that might not have been obvious 15, 20, 30 years ago, but it's very obvious now, economic reasons why making computer-human interfaces is very, very important. We have military reasons. We actually have artistic reasons. That may seem to be a little bit off the wall, but in fact, I think the impetus to increase our ability to leverage off the computers in the arts is something that is very real. And in fact, watching that sort of progress in a way is one of the most intriguing things. When I think about scenarios, I like to look for symptoms of scenarios. There are symptoms that a person could watch for, say, to indicate to one that the singularity was not coming on. There are symptoms you can look for to try to imagine or try to detect that maybe it is happening. And watching what happens in the arts is actually kind of an intriguing thing. And imagining what early post-human art is like is also an intriguing thing. It would be, going back to the analogy with humans first arising, it would be like the first person who could ever tell a joke it didn't have to be a good joke. Whatever joke he told was going to be an enormous breakthrough. And in a way, if we do get the singularity, looking at early post-human art would be a very intriguing thing, at least for the early post-humans. Tell us a little bit about some of the other symptoms of the singularity approaching. One symptom is if you begin to notice success and surprises with working with very large arrays of processors. If you begin to actually see some real breakthroughs into radically different schemes for doing large software projects. Right now, the paradigm is engineering, and the larger the software project, the more people like to think of it as like an enormous building project. If instead the paradigm shifts over to a more biological paradigm, and there's certainly, for at least 50 years, there have been people hoping and pushing for that. If that actually comes to pass as we begin to see these very large networks and massive parallel processing systems being applied in radically new ways, those would all be kind of indicative. I think that both Google and Wikipedia actually are positive signs for qualitative changes in our ability to reason with large amounts of information and to coordinate the activities of humans toward goals that would have been very hard to achieve or at least to achieve quickly in the past. And in the case of Wikipedia, there are things about Wikipedia that if you would talk to somebody knowledgeable, say 1995, about the possibility, they probably would have told you that while Moore's Law and disk drives might make it possible, there were human reasons why it could never work. And so the fact that the human reasons have actually made it even more powerful is one of those positive surprises that we see moving into this century. One thing that you mentioned is the idea of employment and unemployment as a sign of the singularity. Could you 
tell us why that is? One possible symptom is that if you noticed that productive work, by that I don't necessarily mean the work that people are willing to pay for, but I mean not busy work. Work that really, if you can't get a person to do this job, you're in serious trouble. If the number of such job slots were to begin to decline, and if you found that productive work really could only be done by people, say, who were previously not just white-collar, but at the very top of the white-collar pyramid, that would be kind of a symptom, and there are other symptoms. This might not be one of them, but this is one sort of symptom that would be very striking, and one of the things that would be most likely indicating is that automation is actually taking over, whereas in the year 1920, you might be a little bit worried about automation taking over if you were one of the large numbers of people that was needed to do certain forms of manual labor. In the 1970s, you might be a little bit worried if you were an accountant. Now, all through these years, the valid response has been, don't worry about the automation because, in fact, the added wealth created by the system, uh, together with the peripheral jobs that are needed to maintain the automation, will just mean that you have to be alert and nimble to change your career. That's sort of the stage that we're still well into, and I'm very happy with it, although it is very stressful to have to change one's career. But what if you actually began to find that the added automation was causing a net decrease in the number of real employment slots that were needed? I think this could be easily disguised by the fact that the economic output would still be soaring upwards and upwards and upwards, and it'd be very easy to for everybody in the world to be living better and better and better. And I don't think, by the way, this is a symptom that we have actually seen happen as yet. But if it were to happen, it certainly would be a very strong symptom along these lines. Tell us a little bit about the way that the singularity can happen. You have two scenarios, what you call the hard takeoff and the soft takeoff. Ah, by the way, Rick, let me say it an unasked question here. And that is, there also are symptoms for the singularity not happening. Okay, yeah, let's hear that what are those. That can be watched for. Possibilities, things to watch for that perhaps would mean the singularity is not happening is if you were to notice that we don't get radical breakthroughs in software engineering, if you were to notice that, if you were to, say, track the number of large software projects that were failing, software projects actually are interesting when they fail they can fail in ways that are so colossal that you can't spend enough money to resurrect them. In a lot of engineering projects, if you say failure is not an option, you just keep throwing money at it, eventually you can declare success. There have been a number of software projects in the past where they get to be so bad that you can't even paper them over, that it's a disaster to do anything except walk away from them but and we, do something entirely different. What would be an and example of one of those? Actually, I would rather not... <laughs> I'd rather not cite an example because they are at the heart of the Western enterprise and there are large organizations that have suffered enormously from them. But if you just look at the news, you can find large projects that have failed. That's a characteristic of large software projects. If we found that as we try to scale up to larger and larger projects, that we find more of that happening, then that would be a, a negative sign. Similarly, as we put more and more real-time life-critical automation into place, 
the amount of acceptance of that would be indicative of which way that we were going. If you saw Moore's Law actually begin to level off, or actually very closely related to that, if you saw demand for the improvements that Moore's Law brings, for instance, demand for disk space, if you saw that begin to level off over a period of time, none of these are necessary and sufficient sorts of symptoms, but they're a whole constellation of things to watch for. At every stage in technological progress, there have been people that said, I can't imagine why anybody would ever want to have a computer in the home. Or I can't imagine why anybody, any reasonable person, would ever want to have more than four megabytes of central memory on their computer. At the time these statements were made, they did not sound stupid to the people who were making them. And in very short order, they were very embarrassing statements because actually people did find reasons for that extra sort of demand. If we actually entered an era where the next generation of such predictions appeared to match the demand, that would be a negative symptom. So those are negative symptoms out of this you know, very large constellation of symptoms that are very intriguing to watch for. End of detour. Let's talk about the hard takeoff and the soft takeoff. Ah, the hard takeoff and the soft takeoff come from the fact that although I feel that one of the central features of the technological singularity would be unknowability beyond the event, thinking about scenarios that lead into it, or if you really think it's very, very bad, ways to avoid it, ways to guide it so that it could come out to be safe and happy, which actually there's a possibility that it's the most plausible, happy outcome we could have in the 21st century, then it becomes interesting and important to think about such things. And one powerful tool, mainly because it's one of the few tools that we have, is analogy. And I had the analogy with the rise of humankind within the animal kingdom as an analogy for the singularity. If a person looks at that, one thing you notice is that from the standpoint of the rest of the natural world, the coming of humans was a situation where the pace of things picked up. Humans can do woulda, coulda, shoulda simulations in their mind about what's going on with other creatures in their environment or what's just going on as consequences of their own actions. They can do that simulation. They're not alone in being able to do such simulations. They are far and away better than anything we know for doing such simulations in their head. The animal and the plant kingdom has for hundreds of millions of years done simulations like that, but it's called natural selection and it proceeds relatively slowly. One of the very spectacular things about humans coming is that things could change very, very fast. I think in the essay I have the example of weather gets cold. If the weather gets cold, and even if you're a Paleolithic human, you could react to that in a number of ways that would be very, very much faster than, say, what a nearby buffalo could do. A nearby buffalo could move to a warmer place. It could use the effect of natural selection, which is give it the ability to grow a thicker coat when things got cold, or it could die. Actually, that last option is maybe meaningless for the individual buffalo, but it is the reason why, over a long time scale, the buffalo was capable of getting a thicker coat when things got cold, natural selection at work. The humans, on the other hand, had other options besides those, especially if there were nearby buffalo. So in thinking about the technological singularity, 
One possibility is that when it finally happened, the transition from us having an interview like this about something that may or may not ever happen to a point in time where it's obvious that something like this has happened, that might not be 20 or 30 years. It might be like, for instance, 100 hours. And that seems very much off the wall. It comes from just thinking about this analogy with our relationship to the animal and plant kingdoms. And I think it's marginally possible. It, I, I would call such a very, very rapid transition a hard takeoff. Physically, it almost resembles an explosion more than it resembles technological progress. The alternative, if we're still talking about singularity scenarios, is something I call a soft takeoff. In a soft takeoff, it's 20 or 30 years of very intense change, very stressful change, but change that has a chance of being guided, that has a chance of being a subject to decisions, actually has a chance to be something that the humans who are moderating it can keep up with it as it goes along, perhaps by improving themselves. Personally, I suspect that a soft takeoff would be a much safer and more attractive thing than a hard takeoff. It seems the way you're describing a singularity that it's, in a sense, the next step in human evolution, and that what we have done ha is to have evolved the means to increase the rate of evolution. I think that the technological singularity is entirely in line with the meliorative trends that people of goodwill have imagined and have observed throughout human history. In one sense, it is scary. In the other sense, it is just something that could be an extremely good thing. When your best wishes and your best dreams about making the world uh, better come true, and they come true on a short time scale, that is scary. It is, however, something I think that is possible, and it is certainly preferable to many of the terrible things that we see that could happen in the 21st century. I'd like to talk about levels of superhumanity. You've discussed what you call the weakly superhuman and the strongly superhuman. Could you describe each of those to us and tell us what they imply about the singularity and how we enter and what maybe might be happening on the other side? Uh, I should caution that I use those terms in the essay. I think they're cool to think about, but even more than a hard takeoff and a soft takeoff, we are now stepping over into Let's speculate about these neat things. They might make a good story. In other words, I think one of the intriguing things, now that we're beginning to get into an era where we actually have machines that, although we don't know how to put them together, have significant raw hardware power. As we begin to enter this era, these sort of wild speculations may be things that actually would be subject to more sensible and grounded experiments and speculation. However, that said, I am happy to uh, speculate. Weak superhumanity and strong superhumanity came from the following sort of thought experiment. One thing that some people have thought about when they think about artificial intelligence is that we can't concretely imagine what it would be like to be smarter than a human, except perhaps by these wild analogies with animals and humans. There is, however, a concrete possibility you could consider, and that is, imagine something that is as smart as a human. There are examples of things as smart as humans, like us. Now, what would it be like if you could simply speed something like that up? You know, make it 
continue to think at a human level, but just be able to run it much faster. And it's quite plausible that such a, um, a thing could actually produce results that would look miraculous to an outsider that was not speeded up. So the notion here, fantastical notion, even by comparison to what we've been talking about before, but if we want to talk about the possibility of making something as smart as a human, this is one way of imagining how that threshold passed, it would be easy to make something a lot smarter. I call that weak superhumanity because, in fact, the thing that's speeded up by itself is still not smarter than a human. It's just thinking faster than you or I can. Does that make it superhuman? Well, in some very effective ways, it does. But it does not have the sort of philosophical power to it that I think a lot of people associate with the notion of superhuman or transhuman or transcendentally creative minds. So a person, for instance, could imagine a dog speeded up by a factor of a million. Unless you did something with the architecture of the dog's mind, a dog speeded up by a factor of a million is not intuitively a different sort of thing that a person, a human, even thinking at its normal rate, has a sort of an edge over a speeded up dog. By the way, that can be debated, but it's intuitively plausible. So the notion of strong superhumanity is the notion that there could be something that is actually qualitatively different, not just speeded up about being somehow smarter than human. And there are plenty of people who think that that is just, that is plain out impossible, that above a certain level, intelligence can't exist, or perhaps more precisely, that self-awareness is not especially important or desirable above a certain level of intelligence. Perhaps self-awareness, valuable as it is, is only worthwhile at, at certain layers. In a sense, what you're describing is the difference between, say, getting a faster processor for your computer and getting an operating system upgrade. Yes. Actually, I would put it more extremely than that. It's the difference between getting a faster processor and figuring out how to be a person. There are things that really have to be done differently about the way you connect things up and stuff like that. And so just making the things faster, you know, is not enough. And of course, that is probably the fundamental objection that I see that reasonable people have to even the possibility of the singularity, that the fact that the power is there, if you can't figure it out how to hook it up, you're still dead in the water. Tell us a little bit about how bad the singularity can be. I mean, how can it be bad for us? Why might we perceive it as a threat? First of all, my usual disclaimers. One is it's something that may not happen. Another thing is that the 21st century is already a very dangerous place for the human race. I recommend Michael Reese's book, uh, Our Final Hour. He's a world-class cosmologist and talks about all sorts of bad things that could happen in this century. Many of them are human-caused, including our technology, but there actually, there are other dangers. The universe as a whole, as we have come to realize, is sporadically a very dangerous place. In a sense, we've been kind of living in a fool's paradise, sort of a, an observer effect that we survive, so we think that the universe is a peaceful enough place to survive. So there's lots of dangers in the world and in the universe, and technology and the singularity, if it can happen, are themselves risky, but of the happy outcomes, they are one of the most likely ones that could make a happy outcome. If a person wants to talk about terrible things that could happen in general, or in particular with a technological singularity, I think without 
pursuing it, the most obvious thing is to retreat to analogies and think of all the terrible things that we have done to the critters that don't match us, how much we have taken over and how much we have hurt them. That's that's actually a very scary sort of analogy. Personally, I think it's not a good application of the analogy. I had another essay. The analogy that I just finished is sort of nature bloody in tooth and claw. It's the way that many people look at, at evolution and at competition. And it fits with animals, but actually there are larger analogies that go back farther. And evolution as a whole has an awful lot of awful lot of situations where it hasn't been bloody competition. It actually has been uh, competition together with cooperation, making things better for everybody. You can look at the, the mitochondria in the cell or the way bacteria cooperate in terms of sharing information. At that level, we have a different model of evolution. And it's one that fits when you have sort of low interpersonal barriers between the participants. And one thing about networks and about the communications and computer technology that we're getting into is that actually it allows people to have much broader information about what's going on and to share the point of view of other people in a way that was not possible before. And I think it's entirely possible that one feature of a post-singular world will be that the combination of the ensemble of people and computers, as sort of manifested by Wikipedia, is one that shows that it is the sharing of information, that biological model, more than this idea that we have felt very strongly over the last thousand years and longer, where you know, you're beating up on somebody and you're making sure that they can't survive so that you can survive. I think the cooperative model is actually probably the one that makes sense if you're talking about the sort of communications regime that is possible to get into uh, with computers and networks and people. We've been speaking with Werner Vinge. His new novel is Rainbow's End. Thank you for joining us, Werner. Thank you, Rick. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.